Welcome to Deep Dive, Episode 13, North. Hello, I'm Andy Tarnoff, publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by aviation journalist Jeff Wise. Jeff, we took a week off to kind of reset ourselves, but now we're here for the episode that I've been waiting for. We're back. How was your time off? It was, I would like to say it was restful, but I'm always, you know, digging. There's always more clues and more people reaching out to me with ideas. Um, People are saying, oh, what about this video? I didn't quite realize until you and I started making this video podcast, how many video podcasts there are and how many people are making video podcasts about MH370. There's Um, a lot of them. And I took the time to listen to a couple of them on a road trip last weekend. And I think... I think we're doing a pretty good job here. Well, I think we have a different approach. I, what I'm seeing so far is a lot of people proposing theories or scenarios, a lot of times with a lot of confidence and saying, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that you and I talk about again and again is that it's not in really that useful to propose a theory. We really have to grasp the entire range of possibilities and try to sort through the evidence and say, how does each piece of evidence make the various scenarios more or less likely? So what is what, what are the range of possibilities we're dealing with? So that's our approach. People have heard it before. They'll probably hear it again. But yes, I, I also feel proud about what we're doing here today. And I am also excited about what we're going to do today. After our little break, we come back rejuvenated and refreshed and ready to fight with renewed vigor. Absolutely. So let's give a quick recap as to where we left things off, and then we'll talk about some alternate explanations today. You do the recap, and then I'll lead into the alternate explanation. Okay. So we've led uh, our listeners and viewers through the basics of what happened to this plane in the initial stages of the flight, how um, it appeared to go into the Southern Indian Ocean. And we sort of started with the assumption that this data is what it seems to be, and, and why we would conclude that it went into the Southern Indian Ocean and specifically where it would go in the, in the Southern Indian Ocean. But we also opened the possibility that it might not have gone into Southern Indian Ocean, that there was apparently, we, we don't know 100% sh- for sure, but apparently there was a vulnerability right. whereby a very clever, sophisticated and malicious um, agent could have altered the data to make it look like it went south when it actually went north. And so that's what we're going to deal with today. We're going to say, okay, if it did go north, where would it have gone? Yeah. So in in this episode, we are going to bring up that possibility. And we're not going to talk about who did it, why they did it, or even really how they did it, but what they could have done. And again, yeah. So if the data was correct, untampered with, and we spent an entire episode on that one about hacking, then it would have gone south. But Let's talk about that northerly route. First of all, I'm going to refer to a lot of notes on this one because we have lots of maps and stuff. So if you hear paper shuffling, that's going on. That's good. Refresh my memory. The plane was, before it made its alleged southerly southerly turn, it was actually pointed kind of north by northwest, right? Right. So when last seen on military radar, it was flying to the northwest. And then it seems to have made a turn even further to the north. We know that based on the geometry between its last radar return and the curve of the first arc. In order for the plane to have maintained its speed, it must have turned to the right, kind of heading towards Kazakhstan. Okay. But then, 
And then, so to recap what we've talked about earlier, based on half of the metadata, the BTO or burst timing offset data, scientists were able to work out a series of rings from which they were able to derive a route that the plane would have taken in order that flying straight and fast as planes do, it would have hit all of those rings at the right time. But they were somewhat flummoxed to realize that they didn't just find a route, they actually found two routes, one a mirror of the other. It was sort of circularly symmetrical. And so then they had to use this other set of data, the BFO data, to determine which of those two was correct. And I think I have a, we have a shot uh, taken from one of the reports showing those two routes, one of them going to the Southern Indian Ocean, one of them heading to the Northwest over the Andaman Islands, over India, Nepal, Western China, and into ultimately Kazakhstan. So this would be a good episode for people who, are, who listen to it to watch it because we are going to have a bunch of maps and graphics and stuff. And it will try to make it make sense if you're just listening to the audio version of it, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff page, to see. Yeah, you could also just go to the show page and you could look at you could look at that after if you want to listen to the audio version. But we'll explain. I think if people have a rough idea of Asia geography, they'll get they'll get it just but more to the point, we're gonna talk about the route, but we're also gonna talk about the major objection that people have had really from day one about a northern route. Which is the same one I would have had. Yeah, it's the thing is it's the same one I had as soon as I heard about this. I was like, there's no way that a plane is going to fly all the way halfway across Asia and not get noticed by radar. Because I think that's a misconception that we need to clear up that there isn't there aren't eyes in the sky or in 2014. There were not eyes in the sky at all time telling everyone where everything was. It's not quite as simple as that. So as we go through these, we're going to we're going to talk about why a plane could sneak by. So we don't know for sure, and we'll talk about this more later, we don't know for sure that a radar wasn't on that could have seen it if it had passed that way, but nobody has come forward and said, we know it didn't go this way because we were looking at this airspace and nothing came through it. So it's again, we're back in kind of the land of ambiguous non-information. Right. But it's just kind of a general principle here. The way military radar works, or, or the reason military radar works, is because it's expensive. It requires a lot of electricity, a lot of manpower, and it's designed to look at potential targets for a country. We saw this in real life. I mean, like, you know, all these blimps were flying around Alaska and stuff, and they didn't totally notice them, or if they, like, it didn't result in, like, the scrambling that you imagine in the movies. It yeah. Always... And there's another kind of, meta point, you could say, about MH370, which is that people have preconceptions or they have ideas about their knowledge of the world that they tend not to interrogate. And so if you say, well, military, there's military radar everywhere, they surely would have seen it. If you say to somebody, and that seems like a very reasonable thing to say, yeah. and a lot of people, most, most people think that. But yeah. if you say to them, okay, wait a minute, name me one radar that would have seen, you know what I mean? Well, they don't, they just, they assume. Oh, just radar. It's yeah. Assuming is the killer. Time and time again with MH370, people assume things and those things, those assumptions turn out to be wrong. You really have to go over this case with a fine tooth comb. I recently did an interview with an Australian TV station for a, a special they're gonna do on the 10th anniversary. It's coming up. And I was saying to them, I came up with the analogy that I liked, which is like, this is like a Swiss watch. You, you have to know how it, if you, if it stops working, you can't just like bang it on the counter and hope it's going to start working again. 
You need to, to open it up. You need to know how this thing works and you need to get in, look at it with fine detail. MA370 is like that. Okay, so let's dive right into it. So half an yep. hour after leaving the Malacca Strait, and now we're talking about the, the northerly route here, the plane right. would have passed over the Andaman Islands. Okay, those islands belong to India, and they right. have a radar station there. Right. So they're, yeah, they're going right over radar station. Does that disprove our scenario right off the bat? Well, in the weeks, in like the first week or two after the plane disappeared, when we really didn't know if it went, we'd heard about the Inmarsat data, but we didn't know yet if it went north or south. Reporters were asking, like, what was the radar situation? And it turned out that the Indians didn't have any international conflicts going on in the area. They weren't really worried about anything coming from the Andaman Islands. And they didn't have it turned on. They admitted, like, we weren't really looking for anything there. So, yes, yeah, we, so we wouldn't have known. I mean, which even if it did go south, it might have gotten very near the Andaman Islands before it turned south. So people were have always been very interested in the Andaman Islands. But the Indians said, yeah, we didn't see it because it was turned up. Which also, parenthetically, Thailand saw it right after the turn around, but they didn't see it later when it went up the Malacca Straits. Indonesia never saw it at all. And so again, more data fueling the, the idea that a lot of countries, even if they have radar in a certain area, don't always have it turned on. Yeah. So Especially India, kind of midnight to 6 a.m. where there's very little traffic. N nobody's expecting a bombing run to come in. They don't have enemies that they're about to shoot up. I mean, India has enemies, but they're, they're, it's Pakistan. And they, point, they use their resources to point their radar toward those borders. And the chief of staff for the Indian island said to Reuters, we operate this on an as-required basis. This right. they viewed not to be one of those required basis, perhaps. Yeah, so it sounds like they it's it's plausible, um, especially because it went right over Calcutta, which is a major, obviously one of the biggest cities in India, and there's also air bases nearby it, and that would be that would be one of the major ways that this whole northern hypothesis could be ruled out. If the Indians stepped forward and said, hi, yeah, we had our military radar on, we had our primary radar on, we didn't see it. And listen, a 777 is a big airplane. We definitely would have seen it if it flew overhead. We know that it didn't. In fact, that, it they have over, not said that. It went over an Indian airbase called Kailakunda, and that did have a squadron of Russian-built Sukhoi Su-30 fighters based there. But that... You know, it's very possible that the, if, if the Andaman Island radar was active, so was this Air, Air Force Base. So this part of India is, it's near Bangladesh, it's near Nepal, it's not too far from Bhutan. These are not, there's just no kind of international tensions between these areas. Now, where is India in conflict with? It's in conflict with Pakistan. Right, they, which is they a thousand miles to the northwest. So that's I mean, a long that's way. Just a, that is so a that long is actually, way. We're, we're going to go closer to that later. But now we're going to say India just isn't concerned about this. And it's not a rich country. I'm not one to tell them how to spend their defense dollars, but it seems like they're they were not on a state of high alert at that time. OK, after it crosses out of India, it goes into Nepalese airspace. Nepal is a small, poor country. It doesn't have an air force. It doesn't have any air defense radar. That makes total sense to me that there would be no one manning anything. And right. Yeah. Nepal probably wouldn't have seen it anyway. 
And the other thing to talk about here, we start to get into an area that's really kind of interesting from an aviation perspective. Yeah, yeah. Once you explain this to people, like the light bulb turns on and it it totally makes sense. It's kind of an aviation desert. And Mm -hmm. if you look at something like Flight Radar 24, which has real-time tracking of all the flights that are up in the world and you zoom into this area, you'll see something really interesting. There's a lot of traffic in like northern India and even the sort of Russia, China part that's a little further north. But in the, the over Tibet itself, there's almost no planes flying. And it might, it, you might well wonder, well, why is that? How come there's a, like, it's a black hole almost. There's just no aviation. It's like a forbidden zone almost. Yeah. There's actually a reason for that, which is the Himalayan plateau is so high that if you have an accidental depressurization, which God forbid you ever do, but just in case you do, the protocol is to descend immediately to 10,000 feet where the air is thick enough that you can operate without needing pressurization. Well, the, the land is so high there that you can't do that. And so you don't really have recourse unless you have special training and equipment, which some like Lufthansa had a flight that, that flew over that area. And they had special like oxygen canisters for the flight crew so that they could carry on and, and do their work until they could get to a place where they could right, do so an emergency. If I can just put this into layman's terms here, because I've been on enough planes where they say, you know, if, if in the event of depressurization, the masks come down, that's because you're over 10,000 feet where the air is too thin to breathe and you need the aid of the oxygen. The emergency protocol for all planes that are flying over 10,000 feet, I suppose, that need pressurization is to drop to 10,000 feet. Then you can take off the mask and you can breathe and you can figure it out because a plane can fly safely at 10,000 feet. Except in this case, the Himalayas are there. And I mean, right. they could be taller than 10,000 feet. So the, you've got the Himalayan plateau, which is just all very high. And then even higher on the southern end of it, you've got the Himalayas. And you've got Mount Everest, which is like, what, 30-something thousand yeah. feet. So, 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 so nobody's flying there. It's just, so why would you, point, why point, would you the, point radar there? Yeah. The planes could fly there. They don't fly there for safety reasons. It's not like they, right, it's right. Not like they can't fly over the Himalayas. They can, they, no. the planes fly higher than the Himalayas, but they just, for safety reasons, they, they have to be able to descend in, an, in that un, rather unusual emergency situation. What we're talking about is this, we're sort of hypothesizing that if this plane went north, according to the calculations made by Australian scientists, it would have followed a fairly narrow path that would take it into the western edge of this aviation desert which is a place where it's hard to operate commercial aircraft and it's even hard to operate military aircraft. It's, it's remote, it's cold, the air is very thin. We get to this very interesting question of were there Chinese air bases in that area or radar installations that would have or could have picked up MH370 as it passed through that area? Going through Tibet first and then Xinjiang, these are two regions of Western China. Right, but there are airstrips, there are bases, they're just extremely remote. Yeah, I mean, they really would have passed almost directly over a place called Ngari Gunsa. Right. And this is a pretty big, it's 15,000 feet long. I'm reading from my notes here. Yeah, we're going to have to read from Um, notes. Yeah, it's altitude of 14,000 feet. It's the fourth highest altitude airport in the world. In the world. What's interesting is that so it only they had only recently built it. They'd started building it in 2007. It was built in 2010. But if you look at it, if you know, you can 
access a lot of satellite photography just through Google Earth itself. You know, you can go sure. back in time and you can see what airplanes are on the tarmac when. And what you see is that sometimes they have air, uh, they have fighter jets there and other planes. But it's fighter jets that really give you a sense of like, is this airbase being used for air defense? And a lot of times they don't. There's a, a 2017 article in an Indian defense magazine. And it was saying that since 2010, the Chinese Air Force has been deploying fighter jets only, quote, twice every year for two-week deployment periods. So that's four weeks out of 52. They're doing these temporary deployments there. Were they running a, a, you know, radar? Why would you run radar? I mean, there's nothing. It's a very sparsely settled area. If you're worried about, for instance, India launching long-range bombers to attack, they've got a long way to fly in order to attack your main areas. And I just, you know, you have to wonder how worth it it would be. And sort of like China and India, their tensions kind of rise and fall. India also has its tensions with Pakistan and yeah, you know, I mean, what we're, we're describing here is like a perfect storm, right? So I said we weren't going to talk about how or why or even who did what they did, but this would be someone who had to have a very detailed understanding of how border security, border radar works. These are areas that you can fly that you might get away with. I yeah. mean, it just gets, it gets even more remote after this. They go to Haitan, an ancient Silk Road town on the southwestern edge of the, you know, if you can pronounce this one. Taklakaman Desert. What do you know about that place, if anything? <laughs> well, I just know from my research, which I yeah. did, you know, back in the day. Right. But this is a, there's, there's a staging area for, for fighter planes, maybe, but there are no military aircraft there, or there weren't any in February 2013. Right. Uh, September of that year, there are 26 jets and two helicopters. The following month, the ramp is bare again. And then in October of 2014, 16 military jets are visible. So what I'm seeing is it's the same sort of situation as Nagari Gunsa, where planes come and go. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that in the wake of MH370's disappearance, China stepped up its overall air defense capabilities in the region. So it, it seems like suddenly China which kind of a little bit of historical context, China was very poor under Mao. You know, yeah. great leap forward. There was starvation. Deng Xiaoping came in. They turned towards capitalism with Chinese characteristics. They wanted to get rich. They became much more prosperous. And as they got more money, they became more powerful. They invested a lot more money in their military. They started developing their own aircraft. They, they expanded a lot of bases. They, they actually built bases in the islands of the, uh, you know, in the, of the Western Pacific and in the South China Sea area. And so they became militarily much more strong. And you can actually see that if you look at satellite imagery of their bases in Western China and Xinjiang and, and um, Tibet, you see their capabilities being built up. And so around this time, they are expanding in this area. And so in 2015, the Chinese Air Force deployed its most advanced anti-aircraft missile system, the HQ-9, to Hotan. And this is, you know, so I, I talked to a analyst who said, you know, it's kind of odd that they would even have HQ-9s out in this desert area. Like, why would they do that? And yeah. you know, it might have just been because they want to, you know, become um, experienced in deploying their assets in different settings. But 
it's just speculation at this point. This is hard where, you know, we are amateurs. We are dealing with the most secretive part of military. You, when you are running an air defense system, you don't really want your enemies to know where your radars are. You don't want them to know where your missiles are. You actually will only turn them on when you really need them because you don't want to give away their location. <laughs> I'm reading between the lines here. I guess I hadn't really thought of this before. You know, they put these HQ-9s in this path. I mean, maybe they had some hunches that the plane went north too. It could be. We just I don't, don't know. know. I, don't I mean, know. what would be probative, again, is if the Chinese stepped forward and said, listen, we were running our radar at that time. We right. would have seen it if it was there, and we didn't see it, and it's not there. They haven't said that. So what we're left with is just the ability to speculate and say, right. look, it, it, we can't rule this out. We're trying to develop a comprehensive portrait of all the possible things that might have happened to this plane. And if we can That's rule right. one of these possibilities out, then great, let's do that. Well, but if, if you make we it can't out, rule yeah. it out, we have to keep it active. So if you make it out of China, six hours from diverting from its planned route, MH370 would have neared the border of the former Soviet Union. And at that point, they'd be scot-free because... Now you're right. talking about the sat former satellite states, Kyrgyzstan, and then ultimately Kazakhstan. And in 2014, these were effectively puppet states of the former Soviet Union, Russia, Putin. If yeah. it made it to either of these places, the West would never know about it. Yeah. I mean, assuming, it, it, and I think we it's not too much of a spoiler to say that, like, if we're speculating that Russian agents took it, that, yeah, if you're in a if you're in a Russian client state and not only that, but a, a client state that is very large in extent, huge country, very poor. And there's just no way. And also have they, they have no like enemies of their own. They're entirely within the kind of strategic umbrella of Russia. So yeah. they have no reason or capability to be scanning the skies for anything. And even if they did, they wouldn't say anything because they're friends with Russia. Right. So, so I want to save the entire back into our Cosmodrome, that whole thing for a separate episode because it's just too yeah. amazing and interesting. But could you briefly explain where the plane would have gone to be aligned with the final ping ring and where it could have landed and how it could have landed there? And then we'll go into yeah, more detail absolutely. in another and I wanted, episode. I think there's an important thing to clear up here, that, uh, okay. a, a question that I think a lot of people have. At the seventh arc, the final transmission that is sent to Inmarsat, the plane is somewhere over sort of, let's call it South Central Kazakhstan, okay? Mm -hmm. It's over a largely unpopulated desert. There's not a lot of landing strips. There's certainly not a lot of landing strips that can handle a 777. Mm -hmm. In our previous episode, we talked about what the BFO value means in terms of what the plane is doing at that moment. Because we are assuming that the BFO data was generated by equipment that was operating as it was intended. Right. None of that applies if we're in the north. True. Because we're assuming that the BFO data was tampered with. So the BFO value no longer has a specific meaning that we can take any inference from. And so we can't assume that the plane was in a five to 15,000 foot per minute dive we just assume it doesn't mean anything. We right. don't even know that it, that it signifies fuel exhaustion. It might have been because under the northern hypothesis, the spoof hypothesis speculates 
that the reboot was caused by deliberate manipulation of the, oh. the reboot of the S, of the satellite communication system. So it could also be another manipulation here to make maybe to make it seem like the plane was out of fuel. Right. Regardless, we do know that the plane must have been very low on fuel, if not out of fuel. So one of the biggest problems with the northern scenario is where the heck, what the heck does this plane do now? Because if it has been hijacked by people who've worked really hard, use really clever, uh, a really clever exploitation of vulnerabilities that even to this day, people mostly don't know about. Yeah. What is their plan? So tell me about this briefly, because I, again, I want to do this in an entire episode because this Cosmodrome is, is right. so interesting. It's worthy of a lot more discussion. But since we're kind of approaching the end of this episode, tell me what this runway is and where it is and how it could have lined up with the amount of fuel that was on board and why it was a special runway. Right. If you look at where this seventh arc winds up, there's a really intriguing fact that kind of pops out which is that it's kind of intriguingly not that far from an area called the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Yeah. And this is, it's a little bit like the U.S. territory in Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, where it's in a different country, but it's like territorially considered part of the, another country. Mm -hmm. So this is basically a little circle of Russia that's in the middle of Kazakhstan. And this is the place from which it launches cosmonauts into space and also astronauts, because for a while we didn't, we in the United States did not have the ability to launch our own right. astronauts into space because we had ended the space, space shuttle, shuttle program, program without yeah. a replacement. So this is a place that actually a lot of Americans go, but it's quite a huge area in the desert. And in the seventies, um, when, when the Americans were developing the space shuttle, the Soviets who didn't want to be left behind in any kind of area, especially of space exploration, decided to build their own kind of knockoff version called the Buran. It looks just like it. It looks a lot yeah. like it. Yeah. And it was actually in some ways technologically more advanced. The Buran went into space only once and it didn't carry any cosmonauts. It was unmanned. And at the time it had a very sophisticated feature was that it was able to land itself. Um, and in order for it to land itself, since the system wasn't that sophisticated, Soviet engineers decided we're gonna build a huge runway it's going to be engineered with like millimeter precision so that when this thing comes down with its primitive computers, it's going to be able to land without any surprises. And it did land successfully. So what you've got is a runway that was built specifically for a plane to land itself. And I think that's really interesting because the 777, which is, you know, a generation later, had the ability to land under certain conditions with airports with certain equipment. And if you imagine, if we're going to talk later about who was aboard this plane that might have been Russian. Yeah. And none of them have pilots training. And you wonder, like, maybe they could just be told which buttons to push to have the plane land itself. So it's easy to imagine that if this plane has enough fuel to get from the seventh arc to Baikonur, and it's like 250 to 350 miles. So it's not nothing. It's not nothing, but it's not also a thousand miles. I mean, it's not a huge 250 miles to an on airplane. A, on an airplane, even gliding, it's not a humongous amount of distance. It would be hard, but a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> a little scary I mean, you don't want this to happen on a flight that far. you're on, but it's not unheard. But the, when the authorities looked at the data, 
and they did a probability calculation of where this plane could have gone only based on BTO analysis and only knowing about the Boeing's flight characteristics, they developed a probability distribution that had this plane able to go to this part of the seventh arc. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I, I don't want to stop here, but I think we're, I don't want to give people too much and there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, it's it, the whole game, the whole nature of the game that we're playing, Andy, is to kind of measure it out, take a steady pace, talk about things one at a time. But the bullet points from today's episode are there is a route that the plane could have taken that is not ruled out by military radars of the various countries along the way. There are some problems. Probably there's two major, I think the two biggest problems with the northern scenario are the flight simulator data, Zahari's flight simulator, and the fuel, like getting having enough fuel to get to Baikonur. It doesn't necessarily have to go to Baikonur. There are some other places that it could have gone to, like that are sort of within range of this place. But we're going to talk more about Baikonur. It's pretty fascinating. Right. Well, we don't have any proof that it successfully landed anywhere. We just have the proofs, no. proof of the, the transmissions. So for all we know, you know, this story could have ended with a crash in the desert. I mean, we don't. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, I haven't looked at the, you, I mean, you could take the Google time, Google Earth time machine and go back and look at all of the desert before and after March 8th and see if you can find a crater somewhere. Yeah, I mean, good, but the fact is- I mean, Tom Nod could do it. Tom Nod could do it. If they, if I they would have moved their attention somewhere else. But I guess what I'm saying is, had that plane crashed and had Putin been behind it, we would never know. Correct. Chew on that for a while, if you haven't already. So okay. anyway, and yeah, I mean, it's good. It's great to be back in the saddle yeah. with you. Yeah. So we're continuing to make progress here. I mean, we're getting great comments. People are liking and subscribing, which as the viewer which and listener, love. you should be doing. And we're participating in all of the conversations that we're getting on through social media, but also on our website, deepdivemh370.com. We're reading the YouTube comments. It's the podcast is everywhere now in video and audio. It's not just on Apple Podcasts, it's on Amazon Music, Spotify. it's Spotify, it's anywhere in RSS site can put it basically. So you may be consuming this somewhere else. And if, like I said earlier in the episode, if you're an audio person, check out the video side. If you're a video person and you just want to listen to the car, go for that. There's tons of different options and participate along with us because we're getting great feedback and we're even learning some stuff. I mean, you shot some footage on your own that I don't want to ruin for the, the viewers, but we got... We got some cool things in the hopper. We're experimenting with things. I don't want to like let the cat out of the yeah. bag because we haven't figured out how to make it work yet. But we're trying to do like shorter form videos and other things. But we love when people like write us emails or just reach out to us or comments on the show page, deepdivemh370.com. People are turning us on to stuff. Like I said, there's all of these. People are coming forward and making videos and bringing forward ideas and people are telling us and we're finding out about it because people are telling us. But so thank you for your um, suggestions, for your questions. It, it helps us really kind of do yeah. what we're trying to do. And we're not glossing over all the other stuff either. I mean, you know, we will be talking about the wreckage that whoever it belonged to that was found, what all that stuff, you know, who is on the plane. Yeah. I mean, like we're just doing this in a methodical sort of way because this is a platform and a medium where we can take our time and we can learn and we can really dig into it. We can take the deep dive, you know, hence the name. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to it. We'll see you next week. I appreciate that that week off help because this is a pretty intense project yeah. and there's a lot of animation and, and B-roll collection. But we're back on track and things are picking up. So thanks, Jeff. And Thank you, Eddie. Week. Okay. 
Thanks, Say everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.